understand I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Somebody. Today's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. For more than three years now, everyone has been stumbling around, desperately trying to avoid the worst-case scenario when it comes to Brexit. But it turns out all they had to do was ask a former guest on Second Captain Saturday. Welcome to the show. Owen here with Murph and Ken. Hi, guys. Hey, Owen. How are you? Fintan O'Toole tweeted yesterday, Tomorrow in the Irish Times, I will suggest a concrete plan for how Ireland can stop a no-deal Brexit. Even if he'd left it at that, to be honest, it would have been more detailed than anything Boris Johnson has come up with so far. But he has followed through with an... He's followed through with an actual idea. In a nutshell... It's over to you, Sinn Féin, to alter the course of Irish and British history. No pressure. The party's seven MPs, says Fintan O'Toole, should step down temporarily to be replaced by candidates agreed by all the anti-Brexit parties in Northern Ireland and drawn from non-political walks of life. These candidates take their seats at Westminster, support all measures to stop a no-deal Brexit, including, if it comes to it, a motion of no confidence in Boris Johnson and the formation of an alternative cross-party administration. And all the while, they respect Sinn Féin's policy of abstention on all other issues. That's Brexit sorted. What's next? <laughs> well, it's only five past ten in the morning. <laughs> what do you make of the Fintan O'Toole solution, Ken? I, th- I think it's an interesting idea. but C- Creative. But there's already a but. You only got about a quarter of the way through that. <laughs> I mean, if Sinn Féin had announced that this, this is something they might be interested in doing, I might think there's more chance of them doing it. Yeah. I mean, just... You know, giving up your seats is not something a political party. But they get them back. Does. It's, it's temporary. Yeah. Well, what if it's what if it's a really close arithmetic the next time? Is it like stand aside again, uh, lads? You know, it's it's but kind for the of, next major. I don't think there's going to be anything quite as significant as Brexit coming up for the next. How significant years. is it? You know, like uh, there there is, for instance, the um, in the same paper actually, David McWilliams makes the point. Uh, no deal is really only no deal for now. You know, one, one way or the other, if they do have to trade with the EU, they're going to have to come back and, you know, all the same stuff will then come up, you know, in, in, in sort of that negotiation. So I think Sinn Féin have always been quite good at playing the longer game and maybe, you know, leaving it to uh, see how it plays out and then it might be something that appeals to them more than standing aside. <laughs> you seem dubious. Well, in fairness, I just think fair play to Fintan. He's only, he's only now gathered his thoughts here because he spent the last couple of years recovering from his appearance on this show, Murph. Mm. Did, you make, did you give him the lowest points ranking ever? Sorry. No, not ever. It was the lowest points ranking of that year. What did, what did you give him? I gave him 60 points even though he ran a marathon in 3 hours and 24 minutes, which I, in retrospect, yeah. is about the third or fourth best sporting <laughs> achievement of any of our guests. I, do, I don't know why You're I did that. Bad, bad humour that morning must have been. I mean, listen, unfortunately, these are the vagaries of the scoring system on. On the show this morning is a man who has dedicated his life to campaigning for civil rights, most famously in his efforts on behalf of the victims of Bloody Sunday. He first stood for election to Stormont in the 1960s, was finally elected in 2016. The journalist and activist Eamon McCann is your guest today. I should mention Eamon also supported Brexit at the time of the referendum. He was an MLA at the time for People Before Profits. So if I out if he still feels this is a good idea now that we're hurtling towards no deal. Eamon's deep love for Derry City should give him at least a puncher's chance of climbing to the top of our greatest non-sports person sports person's table. What's the latest there, Murph? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. 
Well, we're closing in on the halfway point of our quest to find this year's greatest non-sportsperson, sportsperson and Senator George Mitchell is out in front on 81 points. Katrina Crowe's bottom of the pile on 75 points with John Simpson mired in mid-table mediocrity. Eamon McCann will vie to charm me sufficiently <laughs> to change that scenario this morning, On Eamon knows what he's got to do, but can he get the job done? 51551 is the number to text. Tweet us at Second Captains. The great Eamon McCann is coming up after a little bit of John Grant. probably say I'm difficult I probably talk too much thought for a second we were going to play the uncut version there didn't you just couldn't do that not at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning or if that's John Grant and GMF recorded with the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra we had to edit out the GMFs and replace them with GLCs which does make it a lot less fun but if you're lucky enough to be at the All Together Now festival you can head along tomorrow night and get the full potty mouth version mm. from John Grant himself and speaking of All Together Now the RTE Concert Orchestra will be performing Leonard Cohen songs at 3pm today on the main stage which sounds like a very lovely way to spend a bank holiday Saturday mm. afternoon I must say our guest on Second Captain Saturday this morning has been a civil rights activist an award winning journalist a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly. He's currently councillor for the Derry City and Strabane District Council and for many decades he has been Ireland's foremost celebrity Derry City supporter Eamon McCann. It's great to have you on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. What, are your, what are your earliest memories of going to the Brandywell? There, there was an eventful Irish Cup campaign in the early 50s I believe. Oh, we had the 1953-54 team, uh, which was still still spoken of with uh, a certain awe by people of a certain age. Mm-hmm. The semi-final was against Linfield, and uh, the first match was a draw, and so Derry went back up to Belfast. Both semi-finals were in Belfast, and won the second one. That put us into the final against Glen Torren, the other of the big two Belfast teams. First match a draw, second, uh, for, and then a replay, and then a second replay. And the second replay... I remember vividly because I wasn't there. I remember a lot of things vividly from that period when I wasn't actually there. Uh, but it was on the I was on a Monday night, and it was the night of the men's retreat in the diocese of Derry. And that was I don't know if people know about retreats now. Sort of it was an annual sort of booster shot of religious fervor, sort of uh, when redemptorists and Jesuits would come to town, and then there would be the men's retreat, which ran for a week. And then the women's retreat, and uh, the men's retreat was on on the Monday night of uh, a, the second replay, and a great dilemma for many people uh, as to whether they could go to the match. And literally, three or four thousand people were travelling from Derry, so there was a big issue of conscience, which was somewhat resolved by on the night of the match. I, the priest, whatever he, I think it was a redemptorist or something, while a sermon was going on, another priest came up and whispered in the ear of the priest who was giving the sermon. He turned around and said, my dear man, Derry have just scored. <laughs> and uh, he the scorer. And, uh, and that was uh, towards half time. Now, at the end of that ceremony, I remember people gushing, bursting uh, out of the church uh, because they didn't know what was uh, happening later in the match. And there was Dinny Harley's chip shop across the street in Craigan and Craigan Street, uh, just beside the cathedral. And a crowd maybe of two, three hundred people were gathered outside when the radio was turned up high and people were listening to the match. There were about 15 minutes to go. You see, if you left 
and try to go home, you would miss sort of more <laughs> of the match. So they say, and yeah, right. And it was a wonderful, a wonderful evening. I mean, people were frolicking and dirty sort of for months afterwards because we had won the cup and against Glen Torren. I still remember it vividly. I can remember the, the winning team. If you want it, I can remember it. And I'm not reading this. It was Heffern, Wilson, Houston, Brawley, Curran, Smith, Brady, Delaney, uh, Forsyth, Toner <laughs> and O'Neill. Forsyth at centre forward was Flossie Forsyth, as we called him. The actual name was, well, I forget what he's like. It became the Unionist MP for uh, Southampton. I met him years later uh, in the House of Commons. He said, how are you, Flossie? And he <laughs> spun around and came back across the lobby and looked up. He said, when I say, he's lived, his real name is Clifford. He was Clifford for Forsyth. And I said, well, they remember the Brownville. And he did. And he, of course he did. Of course he did. Sort of, and we had a good chat. And so, but it was Mousy Brady, wasn't it? That sort of uh, uh, played inside, right. And uh, Mousy Little Man. Now, wait, hear this. I once saw, this is true, I once saw Mousy Brady running through Jackie Milburn's legs with the ball. <laughs> Mousy was a little small guy. Jackie Milburn had come from uh, Newcastle United, great player, was about six foot three, six foot four. And as Mousy appeared jinking and jiggling towards him, he spread his legs wide to try and stop, uh, you know, to make the most space for himself. Mousy stumbled. And he stumbled forward, uh, he came between Jackie Mulburn's legs, and he somehow came out the other with the ball. <laughs> with the ball. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was one of my, that's one of my most vivid memories of football as well. In those days, it was absolutely wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Uh, 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 we didn't see any cross-channel matches because their television wasn't covering them, apart from yeah. the cup final. Uh, How was it even that? I had great memories of the Brandywell. How was it even that, that uh, people in the bog side were kind of so obsessed with football, I mean, soccer or football, that is, when, you know, nationalists, say, elsewhere in, in Derry, were mostly into the GAA? Well, actually, there was no great GAA tradition uh, in Derry. Even now, you could say, sorry, when there's, in the city of Derry, in Derry City, uh, some people have played, they've been county players, of course, uh, from the city. Tom McGuinness was Martin's uh, older brother. I mean, uh, uh, I played uh, midfield, I think he was, in the Derry County team uh, for years. But it was largely regarded sort of as a rural sport from South Derry and North Derry and villages and towns. Uh, there would have been strong teams. But Derry City wasn't, it was always a soccer city. And it was something to do with the history of Derry and its connections with uh, uh, across the water. And, uh, and so forth. But it's, uh, uh, it was soccer mad, uh, uh, the Brandywell. It's just gone 50 years, Eamon, since the Civil Rights March in October 1968. There were, there were you know, a lot of commentary a few months ago reflecting on that time. Many people pinpointing this as the, the start of the troubles, the events around that, uh, that march. Is it right that that actually clashed with a game at the Brandywell? I did clash with the game against Distillery, uh, but we didn't know that. We were, when we were organising uh, the first civil rights march, was on a Saturday 5th uh, of October, it struck us that there might be a home match at the Brandywell, and we reckoned that that might sort of drain away some of the potential uh, support for the march. So a chap who shall be nameless, Finbar Doherty, was sent <laughs> to discover whether Derry City uh, were playing away, home or away, because we're all forgotten. And he came back about 15 minutes later and assured us that Derry uh, had an away game 
I said, on Saturday, the 5th of October. So we put the marches in for there. And, of course, Dunbar got that entirely wrong. There was a match on, on the 5th of October. And I think it probably, the crowd was about 400 at that march. I think it would have been sort of about six 700 had the match not been on uh, because Derry City at the Brandywell was drawing on precisely that demographic of the phrase now. You, you've forgiven him, though, Eamon. You've you forgiven him all these years later, Doesn't I sound hope. like it all. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, did I? Oh, I have. When you reach my age, you know, I've managed to survive it. I'm able to look back over uh, half a century. You forgive almost anything. There's no point in keeping it going. <laughs> Although some do, you know, they're an absolute. Some have done it for 300, 400 years. But I'm, I, I, don't, I, I don't step up to the mark in the terms of remembering, remembering uh, the grievances of those days. I read a quote that you had about that time and around that march. This is when you were reflecting on it last year. You said, we looked for inspiration outwards into the wider world. For example, the black civil rights movement in the US, the campaign against the American war in Vietnam. The civil rights movement held out the possibility of a society where political loyalties were not dictated by communal loyalties, but by attitudes to the rights of working class people to issues of justice and equality, to injustice not just in Derry, but everywhere, which is different from the you know the commentary that has surrounded the, this you know, the troubles and everything that yeah, followed, yeah. in that people talk about Catholic, Protestant, about nationalist unions, whatever it might be. But what you're talking about there is something quite different. Oh yes, indeed. Uh, uh, I think if you go back and sort of read, not historians and not uh, a, you know commentators looking uh, back on it, then anyway, it goes back sort of and looks at the newspapers of the time and look at the various political publications at the time, many of which are gathered at the Linen Hall Wright Library in Belfast around the Kane sort of websites associated with the, uh, Ulster University. Uh, and you will find, I mean, a different discourse going on sort of in those uh, uh, early days. We, there always was sort of splits in the civil rights movement, but one of the simplest ways of understanding it is that when we, and by we, I meant people like uh, Bernadette McAllister, Nell McCafferty, Joe Quigley, and various others, uh, Finbar Doherty, whom I've mentioned, Emma Malach, and so on, when we looked at the United States at that time, we, and looked at the people who might support us, we were seeing the black civil rights marches uh, and uh, uh, the anti-Vietnam war champion. We said, well, those are our people, sort of, we'll go and we're going to go to America and talk to them. There was another tendency within the civil rights movement who saw America as a place where powerful allies uh, might be identified and brought on side. I mean, the people who want, some of us wanted to go to the street, others wanted to go to the White House. Now, that's putting it sort of very starkly and oversimplifying it, but there was that difference and a a real debate sort of around uh, those issues. A, a, A debate of a sort which had hasn't been had since. I mean, I can remember sort of passionate arguments going on in the bog side about the May days in France in May 1968. We were in the aftermath of that. Daniel Cohn bended in uh, Paris. I remember speaking sort of to a huge crowd in Paris uh, on the left bank of the Seine, sort of around the Sorbonne, the university uh, there, and speaking very much, uh, as I saw it, I mean, to people involved in the same struggle as ourselves. And uh, it was a pretend we are all one. That was one of the uh, slogans. Now, that was lost, I have to admit. I mean, you look back on it, you can see that perhaps it was a wee bit fan- fanciful. But nevertheless, it happened. It happened. And I believe that, you know, from my political perspective, it's important to remind people that that happened. We, I, I say to people, yeah, well, you'll never see that again. I say, I know I'll see it again because I've seen it 
in the first place. If it happened before, it can happen again. So, but you're right. I mean, that dynamic sort of of the early days of the civil rights movement has been largely it's been buried. It's been covered over because I think it doesn't suit anybody in any position of authority to recall it. And to, whereas on the other hand, of course, to somebody of my political frame of mind, it's something which sort of I don't diminish. I probably exaggerate it, but <laughs> I want to hold on to the memory of that because there are greater possibilities sort of than that uh, a arrangement of forces sort of in that period of the civil rights movement than there are now. It was by no means as narrow as it is now. What did you make of Boris Johnson's flying visit to Belfast this weekend? Well, oh gosh. I mean, I, I regard Boris Johnson sort of as a, as a really bizarre figure. That's not to say that he's stupid. He's, act, he's acting a role, sort of, when it comes across as that bumbling, sort of a, a hesitant, a vaguely, you know, comical uh, a personality. He's not that at all. I mean, he's calculating as well. But what he's calculating at the moment, particularly in relation to Ireland, I have no idea. I mean, he says that he's going to take the whole of the United Kingdom out from uh, the European Union by the 31st of October, but that there's going to be no uh, border in Ireland or any border down the Irish Sea. Now, this is this doesn't doesn't make make sense. I think you know it's a, a, a but the Irish border question is not resolvable in the way in which these things are usually uh, mm-hmm. uh, discussed. It's like asking somebody to devise a square circle. You know, sort of, and Boris Johnson says, yes, we can do it, yes, we can do it. How? How? I mean, it's impossible, really, uh, uh, to do it. Can we know what's the middle ground between possibility and un- impossibility in that relation to that question? What, what's the shape of a square circle? That's like saying, how can we have sort of a, a, an Aries border which is entirely frictionless, but yet at the uh, same time, one jurisdiction is within the EU and the other is governed by, as part of the United Kingdom. It doesn't make any sense at all. And uh, I think the closer we come to uh, October the 31st, I mean, there is anxiety uh, uh, growing. And uh, I, I wouldn't be very happy about the prospects. Although, just, uh, although I'm an optimistic person by nature, sort of, and I think we'll get through it and so forth. But it's a, a Johnson's appearance in Northern Ireland, sort of, it was not helpful. Was not helpful. He used to be seen as a, as I say, some kind of a joke figure. But the the North here, when you look at him, the joke's over. He's not funny anymore now that he's prime minister. Now that he's got power. Mary Lou Macdonald said this week in the event of a hard border, there should be a vote on a united Ireland. What would you say to that? All I would say is, yeah, I would have no problem with that, no problem whatsoever. There are, of course, huge dangers in that. If he did have a vote, it could have a polarising effect. In fact, it would have a polarising effect because it would ask people explicitly to divide themselves at the polls into orange uh, and green. Now, I'd have problems with that, partly because there's an awful lot of people, and I'm one of them, sort of, and uh, in, in the North now, who don't regard themselves as either. Uh, orange or green and if they were herded as it were once again into those uh, uh, camps it would be a big step backwards if you look at the life and time survey and so forth in uh, the north it is no longer a place split simply between orange and green so in crude terms there's about one third orange one third green and one third your other than that, whatever uh, uh, other identity uh, they have. So, you know, sort of the categories which are traditional and which are the basis of the Good Friday Agreement, for example, don't seem to me to match the reality uh, of the situation. And you can see that reflected. You said I'm a councillor in the Derry City Instagram Council. It's a far more varied 
councils than it used to be. I mean, we now have, what, five independents on it. You have two uh, Alliance Party people, one member of N2, two members of people before profit. None of these groups were represented. Even a few years ago, it was all nationalist and uh, unionist in a straightforward way. So things are changing. I was speaking last night on the fountain, which is a... Uh, a, a small Protestant working class area, sort of cheek by jowl, uh, with the bog side. And we had a fascinating uh, discussion over about two and a half hours. And which anybody who's had that discussion would have come out of it and said, you know, this is not, this is not as simple as orange and green. It's far more nuanced and uh, uh, complicated uh, 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 than that. So, so I think a, a, a border poll could set things back. That having been said, this is democratic mechanism, isn't it? You know, it's a. And I have nothing against sort of getting, but uh, the role that I would play in that and that uh, people of my political mindset would play sort of would not be simply to say, yes, let's have a united Ireland or no, let's not have a united Ireland. We'll be arguing for a different Ireland altogether. For example, if we're going to have a united Ireland, is there going to be a national health service right across the new state? Because if there wasn't, if I couldn't be guaranteed that I'd have the National Health Service, I don't want to go into a United Ireland. And that's not the only sort of issue on that, that would be the case. And I'm at heart a United Irelander, you know, in the tradition of Connolly and so forth, you know, but if I was given the choice, you can have a United Ireland, but there'll be no more British uh, National Health Service, I would say no thanks. At the time of the, the 2016 referendum, uh, you supported Brexit. Um, I wondered if now that... You know, the, the no deal is sort of looming and there's, there's lots of ways in which things can maybe go wrong. Do you still feel the same way? Have you changed your mind? Well, it's not that I've changed my mind. The situation has entirely changed. I mean, I think that if there's one thing we can all agree on about Brexit is that three years ago or two and a half years ago, whatever, I, whatever it is, nobody at all, nobody on any side envisaged that we were going to have this Tory-generated uh, mess uh, at this stage. I mean, I be, I'm against the European Union. I'm against the European Union. I see it as a neoliberal uh, uh, institution, which is, uh, has uh, been the source of austerity right through uh, across uh, Europe. Whatever its progressive nature that can be argued sort of in its earliest uh, years of bringing people together and so forth. For the last 20 years, the European Union has been growing as a major uh, a world power, I know, with its own army and so on. And we're sometimes told that. If you look at Michael, Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator for the EU, and a very popular man uh, in Ireland, mainly because he's, uh, you know, giving it to the Brits. So, so he's, uh, that makes him popular with many sections in Ireland. Read what he had to say. Read what he has said over this past couple of years. I never see reported about a European army, about a common uh, a foreign policy, about a European foreign minister. They're talking about a European army which will intervene to defend EU interests anywhere in the world. Read it. He says that in so many words. And uh, what does that mean? It means Irish troops in Mali, for example, but that's uh, only the start of it. There hasn't been much of a debate. I'll tell you something. Anybody who thinks sort of that we can stay that the, uh, uh, within the European Union and Ireland, a, a Republic, sort of will be regarded as such a favour, such a pet, uh, that will get concessions one way or another. That is not the way this is going to work. Sort of it's, uh, uh, when deals are struck and Ireland's got a problem with it, they'll be told, we stood by you all throughout that Brexit thing. You know, don't you think you're going to get sort of a free pass now? So there hasn't been sufficient uh, discussion of that. One thing I would uh, absolutely immediately 
concede to you is that our idea that it would be possible to develop a sort of a left tendency, Lexit, as some people uh, uh, called it, absolutely failed. Absolutely failed. Couldn't deny that uh, when you look at it now, there is no left campaign. It no. fell, fell apart. There's just Boris Johnson on the one side and the European Union on the other. And yeah. some of us, you would say, a pox on both your houses. <laughs> no, I take your I take your point, Eamon, about, how, about the problems with the European Union and there have been a lot of those, but I just I do wonder though how at the time of that referendum, you know, did you not was there was there a moment at which you looked around and thought I appear to be on the same side as Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Rupert Murdoch, the DP, yeah. Donald Trump, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and and the opposite side I think from about eighty percent of the constituents in foil, uh, which was which was a massively pro. Remain constituents in the end. Did did you not think at that point something's not right here? Oh well, yes. I mean, and I, I did very little campaigning. I have to say, neither did with the political organisation I'm part of. We we sponsored one debate. It wasn't sort of a rallying, a rally or anything in a hotel in Derry, and that was it. So we weren't actually knocking on doors and we knocked on no doors at all because, I mean, we were making sort of a much broader point. But you're absolutely right, absolutely right, sort of that if two and a half years ago, if there had been, if we had envisaged how things were uh, going to work out, it would have taken maybe a very, uh, a different view. And you're saying sort of, well, should we not have foreseen this? Should we not have foreseen that there wouldn't be any left tendency or current, uh, a built sort of in, uh, in relation to the EU? Should we have foreseen that? Well, possibly we should. All I can say sort of in defence is that nobody else foresaw the way things were going to work out. And nobody at all that I can remember was saying, you know, uh, uh, a, that we'd end up or that we wanted to end up sort of in this situation of, uh, you know, sort of toxic clowns in the British Conservative uh, Party leading, leading sort of the uh, anti-EU side. I didn't foresee that. I didn't. You could say that maybe I should, but I didn't. What about the issue of, of um, how Northern Ireland would, would come to be so central to it? Was that something that, that should really have been foreseen? In, in, you know, if this happens, there's going to be this massive issue which is suddenly going to arise with the border, which is going to massively complicate things. Was, was this something which to people even in, in Derry was not kind of quite obvious? I don't. I don't think it was sort of a, a widely discussed anywhere, north or south in Ireland. Certainly, sort of, it didn't figure at all. Sort of in the uh, debate across the water. Now, and that there is something odd about that. that never, I can't remember. You know, people actually shouting sort of about the border and the centrality of the border and what would happen until about a couple of years into this process. And do do you think? Reason, sorry, sorry, even that's interesting. Sorry, do, do you sorry. think? Do you think it's been it's overdone then? The, the, the no, I don't. I don't yeah. actually. I don't actually. I, I think that sort of it. It just didn't occur uh, to a lot of people. Particularly, it didn't occur uh, to the British side. I mean, we now have a prime minister sort of in uh, Downing Street who famously said that the border between Northern Ireland and the uh, South was no more significant than the border between Islington and Stoke Newington. Now, there's a level of understanding from a, a guy who uh, had a third level uh, education. There was no discussion at all that I can remember sort of, in the British side about what are the implications here for our border uh, with the Republic of Ireland. Uh, so I don't know how things are going to work out. Even, I don't know anybody yeah. who, know how, who knows how things are going to work out. So see if I can illustrate it another way. Like, 
I think sort of what was happening in Greece uh, uh, a few years ago and what was happening with the Podemos movement in Spain and so forth. We had big upsturges and still have in places sort of against uh, EU uh, a bureaucracy and the austerity that was flowing from them. You see, when people like me look at Europe and I look for allies in Europe, I want to see, I want to ally with the people who are fighting back against austerity and against capitalism uh, in Europe. The people on the streets of France week after week after week, it's them sort of that I want to ally, ally with, not with Mr. Macron, sort of and not sort of with uh, any of the other leaders sort of of the EU. It reflects sort of the way we looked at the United States as well. This is an eccentric way, it may be thought, to look at it, but nevertheless, sort of, that's the way I look at it. Mm. What do you think of, I don't know if you, if, I don't know if you saw um, Timmy do these tweet during the week, uh, the Fianna Fáil TD from Clare, and he he said, uh, the standoff with our nearest neighbour is a direct result of Taoiseach Varadkar's failure to engage in basic diplomacy over the past two years. The government's lack of experience and arrogance will hurt Ireland in the coming months. And there's a couple of other people um, who've, who've sort of put forward that view, maybe not as many as there's the propaganda coming from some of the uh, UK media suggesting, you know, that they're sort of suggesting other people aren't saying this. There are a few people, though, who have said that the that the Irish government has been too kind of aggressive and overconfident in these negotiations, sort of overplayed the hand, insisted on conditions that the UK was never going to agree to, and as a result are going to end up with the worst possible outcome. Do, do you feel as though the Irish government also has some responsibility for how this is going? Well, I suppose everybody, all the governments have responsibility, but to be honest, it's not the thing that interests me most about what uh, Leo Varadkar and his government do. I mean, they are committed to the European Union. They see themselves as a relatively small element in this great capitalist uh, a, a block. When I look at the south of Ireland and I talk about unity, you see, I don't look to Rio, Leo Varadkar. I'm not obsessed with what he's doing, or certainly not obsessed sorry, with what Fianna Fáil backbenchers are saying about uh, what Leo Varadkar is doing. And I sort of want to dream about these things. Now, how can we have a different Ireland? How can we have a united Ireland? I don't look to that at all. I look to the women's movement, which uh, I brought about a woman's right to choose to some extent in the South. I look at sort of the equal marriage movement. I look at sort of the movement for women's rights generally, where we saw in relation uh, uh, to all these matters, we saw huge demonstrations in Dublin, in Cork, in Belfast, in Derry, all out on the streets for the same thing. There's a united Ireland, not a call for a united Ireland, but a united Ireland in action. I say the same thing about campaigns against poverty. You listen to phone-in programmes and RTE, then turn around and listen to Stephen Nolan or Talkback on Radio Ulster, you get exactly the same calls about uh, their relatives sort of in trolleys and the corridors of hospitals, of schools, that without basic equipment, uh, all the same things, the same problems. Now, I believe that the key to all this lies, sort of, in the people suffering from all this, rising up together. And as I say, the women's movement has uh, is shown the way in doing that. And I look at Europe in the same way. That's where I get hope in Europe, what's happening on the ground. Sort of, everything good in politics comes from the bottom up not from the top down. And at least that's my uh, a political perspective. So when some Fianna Fáil backbencher criticizes Leo Varadkar, what I do is I just shrug my shoulders. It's not part of my perspective. It's got no effect on the way I think one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, maybe a, an example of, of um, sort of what you would like to see might have been this protest at Harland and Wolf during the week. Did you see this where the, where the shipyards... Yeah. protesters were chanting in Irish and so on. Is this, is this an example of the kind of 
cross-community common interests. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And indeed, if you ask yourself the question, sort of when have Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, to put it as crudely and starkly as that, on what occasions in history have they come together and linked arms in sort of in a common position, not agree, not to, not this sort of moderate business of let's nobody should let's all be nice to one another because it'll feel better. But when they've actually come out spoiling for a fight together, I spoke to about twenty five thousand people outside Belfast City Hall maybe ten years ago now at a rally, to, a trade union rally to defend the National Health Service. I remember looking from the platform outside the city hall, this vast crowd, and just realizing as I spoke. There's no way of telling who are the Catholics and Protestants here. And people were roaring their approval together. I think there's it. It's always been associated when people in large numbers have come out of their communal camps to link arms together and march forward together. It has always been in terms of class struggle, always. That's the relevance of it. And what you saw outside Harland and Wolves was uh, a, a reflection of that in a relatively small way. That's the key. There is the key to solving these problems of sectarianism. It's right there in front of our eyes. All right, we're delighted to be in the company of Eamon McCann this morning on Second Captain Saturday. Going to take a quick break now before we assess Eamon's sporting life. Second captain, first captain, whatever. If you want to get in touch with us on Second Captain Saturday, the text number is 51551. You can tweet at Second Captains. Our guest this morning is the great civil rights activist Eamon McCann. And I am interested, Eamon, to know what role sport played during the Troubles. Was it a, the, the cliché sort of positive force for people during horrendous times? Or did it in ways serve to pull people further apart, given that different sports are obviously divided along sectarian lines and even different teams within the same sport were often supported by the two opposite sides? Oh yes, of course. I mean, it, uh, uh, well, it was, it, it's very, it is contradictory. Uh, I mean, the sport in general, I mean, can you know, whoosh people up into excitement uh, and uh, so forth. But so it can also, you know, unite people. Some of the boxers who came out of Northern yeah. Ireland uh, at that time certainly united people. Uh, Freddie Gilroy and Johnny Caldwell uh, were both popular right across Belfast. Johnny Caldwell was a world champion at the bantamweight. I. Uh, but to come to soccer, soccer is divisive in many ways. I mean, when people go to see a football match, they're going to see people on the field who are sort of uniformed to represent the fans. And when you have got a split society, that can be... So you can't be neutral. For all that you can be moderate in politics and say split the difference and so on. You can't do that sort of in football. You have to be 100% with one team and 100% against the other. Otherwise, sort of a real punch of football, the real nature of football doesn't come across. I mean, nobody goes and cheers for a draw, do they? <laughs> nobody goes <laughs> applauds the, to, to applaud the referee. They go to roar on their team. And when the teams represent or seem to represent sort of different communities, that can be a force for division. You take Glasgow Celtic and Rangers. They, if you, they mean, the last third of the 19th century and right through the 20th, uh, I mean, the, the rivalry between Celtic and Rangers began as, you know, an authentic reflection of a people's consciousness in central Scotland. Uh, but many would say, sort of, that having been a reflection of sectarianism for many, many years, decades, for over a century, that, uh, a, that that rivalry between the two teams is not a reflection of sectarianism anymore, but a reinforcer of it. It continues as a source of sectarianism. Now, saying that, I'm not denouncing either team, so that's just the way things work. And football, but I'd say the, the relationship between fans and a football team is uh, 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 is a complex one. 
Eamon, you spoke earlier about your love of Derry City and gave us some, some great stories of growing up watching them. But come on, every kid, if they're that involved in a club, dreams of playing for them. Do you ever think you were good enough to wear the candy stripes? Was I good enough to wear the candy stripes? Now, there's an intriguing question. The answer to which is no. You know, and, uh, I have to say, sir, that uh, you, you rarely hear anybody, any a, a man sort of admitting that he wasn't much good, it was no good at football. Well, let me sort of break the mould. So I could be a goalkeeper. I wasn't a bad goalkeeper. But as for playing sort of a, a outfield, I was pretty useless. I always was. And I, I always knew and felt what to do. I just couldn't do it. You know, I had sort of curly toes sort of and the, a, the ball wouldn't go in the direction that I had intended. But same as Dean sort of famous poet, brilliant poet, great novelist, reading in the dark, everybody should read it. But Tim is a, 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 was a St. Columns College at the same time as me, and on a television programme, I was asked a, a while back, do you remember Eamon McCann? And his immediate answer was, oh, I do. He was no good at football. <laughs> <laughs> All these years later. And he's a novelist, sort of a, a highly regarded, sort of a, a literary export. But that's the thing he remembered. Now, as I wish he hadn't, uh, but it tells you something about the way you know your childhood years in football follow you down the years. <laughs> I try to ignore it sort of mostly, but it wasn't a bad goalkeeper. Was there sport in your school in St. Columns? Well, there was uh, a there was St. Columns. When I was young, was a Gaelic football place. We yeah. weren't even playing Gaelic football at that time because the college had some row with the people who were running the McCrory Cup, the school's cup, sort of uh, uh, in the north, and St. Collins had withdrawn from Gaelic football, so we weren't playing anything competitive. But we, but we did have, we, there was Gaelic football play within the school, and there were teams. I mean, I was on the winning team twice, sort of, then, uh, the school winning team, sort of, in my period, both the times and goals. We played soccer at lunchtime, that was unofficial. Uh, and there was two pitches sort of in the grounds of uh, Austin Columns and every lunchtime they would be just packed sort of with teams and all their people waiting to go on and so forth there was a division in the school room I talked earlier about Gaelic football the, pe- the borders the people who came from South Derry and North Derry and West Tyrone and so forth there were borders at St Columns overwhelmingly were GAA people whereas people from the bog side like I was after the 11 plus examination introduced in the late 1940s gave us access uh, to St Columns we would tend to be football or soccer uh, uh, fans so there was that difference reflecting uh, I think it's it, Seamus Dean incidentally whom I mentioned there Seamus Dean sort of was the best football player in St Columns you know sort of uh, uh, he subsequently lost his way fell in with the wrong crowd and became a poet <laughs> but he wasn't the only poet there of course and uh, I know Seamus Heaney was there around the same time he might have Seamus Heaney might have taken the academic side of things a little bit more seriously than you were at that stage well uh, Seamus, Seamus was the head boy now, I think the head being the head boy in a school tells you something about uh, somebody, and not all of it positive, you know. So, uh, he was favoured by the... Same thing he once hit me. Really? He once hit me, and the senior... Uh, we used to go in and sort of study sort of after school, and I, I was in there, one day, and I'd be talking and acting the leg, as he so frequently did. And same thing he came up behind me and hit me sort of on the side of the head. 
you know, I've remained, I've remained, I did when he was alive. I uh, once down sort of at a festival in the Western Ireland, sort of, I did remind him of this and said to him, a bit of a thug, were you? <laughs> of course he wasn't. He's a gentleman. I think I had just driven him mad and so forth. But he still shouldn't have done it. Still shouldn't have done it. A painful memory. Indeed. Well, tell us now, about I liked him very much. I liked him very, I liked him very much. And, uh, and his wife and everybody else, sort of, yeah. and his sisters-in-law and all that there. So they're lovely people. They're lovely people. And he's, uh, 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 so I shouldn't be saying anything negative about No, of course not. I'm sure, I'm sure it would be taken in the right spirit by yeah. whoever's listening. Tell us about a less painful memory then before we rank your sporting life, I mean, we need one highlight. It can be from your, what well, doesn't sound like a very illustrious goalkeeping career or another sport for that matter. Give us one one moment where you felt like a real sportsman. No, I wasn't a bad batsman sort of at uh, cricket. We played cricket in the summer. Hardly anybody does that sort of night, but we did. This was a cricketing area the uh, northwest, St. Johnson just over the border. My best friend at St. Columns and all was Mickey Joe O'Kane who came from St. Johnson and Donegal. In St. Johnson cricket was the only game that mattered and that was true of Carrigans, it was true of Rafoe in the northern side, it was true of Brady it was true of Eglinton, Ardmore uh, so it, it be, be playing cricket in those days wasn't as odd or weird sort of as it I made sound today. And I, I think I wasn't a bad batsman, sort of. I mean, I would regularly get into double figures, you know, <laughs> score 10, 12, or uh, something like that. So, I mean, it's uh, I, I love that. I was a good handball player. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, we played handball, usually up the gable end, the, uh, a, a, a gable wall sort of, of houses in the ball side. There would constantly be uh, handball games going on. And I was... By the standards of the place and the time, I think I was a pretty good handball player, but there was no glamour in handball, sadly. <laughs> okay, so an innings of around 10 or 12 in cricket and then some yeah. handball achievements as well. We'll go with that as a, as a joint highlight. Will that handball and cricket ability and your support of Derry City, though, be enough to surge to the top of our leaderboard this week? Murph, please go ahead and rank this sporting life of Eamon McCann. You don't understand I could have had class. I don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Eamon, the time has come for me to allocate to you a score out of 100 for Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person, leaderboard. <laughs> the, oh dear, oh the, dear. Uh, the score will be calculated by evaluating your all-time sporting highlight and the sports person that I feel most reminds me of you. And, re- and remember, 81 points is the score to beat here. So your all-time sporting highlight dates back to your school days and your prodigious handball abilities. I, for one, think it's admirable that you sought to achieve excellence in any sport, even one as universally derided by your peers <laughs> as handball was. <laughs> <laughs> There's even been mention of you being asked to take on two players at a time yes, in handball. Indeed, Is this correct? Indeed. Indeed. Yes. Uh, I, I was, I think, I, you might get people my age phoning in and saying that's not true. I think I was generally regarded as the best handball player across the street at the time. Not that that was a great accolade even then. So certainly not now, but I was, I was. So this, this is a, a tacit admission by your fellow students that you were just too damn hot to handle. So your willingness <laughs> to take on all comers, even asking them to pair up if they like, uh, yeah. reminds me of no one more than the raging bull himself, Jake LaMotta, <laughs> who steamed into sporting contests with little or regard for his own personal safety. So for your love of Derry City, your love of a sporting challenge, and for your time this morning, you get 72 points. Eamon McCann, oh, the raging oh, bull of the bog side. This has been your sporting life. Uh, Eamon, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it.
That's a song from the 1970s by Stiff Little Fingers called Alternative Ulster. Something that a few people are thinking about in 2019. Fantastic stuff from Eamon McCann over the last hour. The raging bull of the bog side, as you've coined it, Murph. I quite, mm. quite like that. Any handball enthusiasts, by the way, from the Rossville Street area in Derry who knew Eamon in the 1950s, <laughs> do get in touch. It sounds like quite the scene. You get in touch most weeks anyway, but yeah, just yeah, on yeah. this particular topic, we would like your input. Huge reaction to Eamon. Mostly positive. A bit of divided opinion on his EU stance, perhaps not surprisingly. Go through a few of the texts here. Rory O'Brien in Killarney says, I could listen to the balanced, logical and well-thought-out attitude of Eamon McCann all day. Mike Burke, I can remember Eamon back in the late 60s on Thames TV in England as a regular Friday night guest with the late Eamon Andrews. Compelling listening even back then. Barry Reid says Eamon McCann is voicing perfectly the opinion of those who oppose Brexit but still have reservations about the EU. This type of opinion has been completely drowned out by the extreme polarisation on either side of the debate. But a text comes in here saying Eamon's reasons for backing Brexit are pretty unconvincing. Someone else says I don't believe Eamon should be supporting the yellow vests in Paris considering their anti-immigrant attitudes. And Lucy has texted in Eamon dismissing the impact of big government and particularly the White House on Northern Ireland. Your first guest of the series George Mitchell might have something to say about that. The Good Friday Agreement wouldn't have impossible without the input of the US government at the time. I don't know if he was exactly talking about that, was he? I don't think he was dismissing. I don't know if he's dismissing yes. George Mitchell's work necessarily. Just but that his instinct was to try to find uh, sort of solidarity with the powerless as opposed to trying to canvas support among the powerful. Hmm. It's, which is not to say there's absolutely nothing to be said for the second <laughs> approach, I suppose. Murph, let's talk about the weekend sport. Hmm. Come on, hit me with it. Well, it's the last round of the Super 8s. We were expecting a little bit more fireworks than we're getting in that there's only really one game to talk about. Why are you talking this down when the one game to talk about involves the most entertaining, uh, passion-producing sports story in Irish sport? For yeah, the last ten it's years, the last, it's, Mayo, come it's on. the last stand of the Mayo it's footballers. But we've been saying Donegal. this. Yeah, we yeah. have been saying this for a number of years now. So really, on I'm not entirely sure uh, that we can say for certain that if even if they lose today, that the bandwagon is is yeah. finally off the road. But there aren't many games where I've thought beforehand. I can completely see myself halfway through the second half of this game shaking my head, saying, "I knew that. I knew this was going to happen." <laughs> but for both teams, yeah. <laughs> so Stoney Gold have been brilliant all year. They've played ten times better than Mayo have all summer. Obviously, they're going to win this by five six points on the other hand how could you doubt this Mayo team in a game like this being played in Castle Bear they were always going to pull out, pull out the stops it's Mayo for, for God's sake this is only ever going to finish one way I do find myself in the middle of games changing my mind entirely about the about Mayo I, team but also about how I felt before the game started yeah and then 10 minutes later changing my mind again but that's what they do that's yeah. what they do to teams I mean on, on the one hand you're going on brilliant current form for Donegal and on the other hand you're believing in the fact that all of these brilliant footballers that you've seen play brilliantly for eight years can do it again when it absolutely matters so I mean I know people don't come here for my predictions and that's just as well because I can't really help but I will be able to say I saw it coming whichever way it goes. So Keith Duggan saying Donegal are entering not so much a football ground this evening as a dark forest to meet a force for whom the normal limitations do not apply. (laughs) Are we in danger of over-egging this whole Mayo thing? Well, no, because (laughs) it used to be that they can either play brilliantly or not so good. But now it's like every 10 minutes or so they change from brilliant to 
uh, terrible and then yeah. back again well, we have the Murph prediction so it should anyway. be brilliant that's pretty much it for us for today but if you're interested in supporting independent journalism then you should have a look at what we do every day on the Second Captain's World Service just go to secondcaptains.com we're back here next Saturday with Roisin Connolly can't wait for that thanks to Killian Down for researching the show to Nikki Dempsey on sound today Mark Horgan and Simon Hick who produced Marion Finucane is up next thank you very much Murph thank you Owen thanks, thanks Ken. Ken thank you Owen thank you Carol thanks most of all for you to you for listening and we'll chat to you again next week 